Have you ever been traveling overseas, logged into your favorite streaming service, and realized ah, your favorite show isn't there? Different countries have different streaming rights, so just because you can watch Breaking Bad at home doesn't mean you can watch it overseas. Well, with Surfshark, you can. Surfshark is the VPN that I use every single day. I simply choose from one of their 3,200 plus servers in 100 countries and get back to watching the favourite shows that I love. Use the link in the description or the episode notes to get Surfshark VPN today for as little as $2.30 per month on a two-year plan and get back to watching the shows that you love. We've all gone to websites only to be presented with a pop-up asking if we'll accept the cookies. Well, did you know that by accepting those cookies, you're allowing that website to collect data on you? These websites will then sell your information to data brokers, who will then create a digital profile of you, which can be used by banks, advertisers, and scammers against you. Well, thanks to Incogni, you no longer need to worry about your data being stolen and sold. Incogni is a tool that will remove your data from these companies for you. All you need to do is sign up, allow Incogni to work for you, and they will contact data brokers on your behalf and guarantee that your digital ID is removed from the internet. Use the link in the description and episode notes and get a Cogni today for $6.49 per month on a year plan and protect your data and digital ID. Hello and welcome to The Essential Reads. My name is Isaac and my goal is to bring to you a bunch of classic audiobooks in an easy and accessible way. This show is brought to you by my store where you can purchase all of my audiobooks for five bucks after publication on here, YouTube and podcast platforms. Uh, and you can also buy some wonderful clothing designed by Valentina Angel Rios, who you can follow in the description. And you can also use the link labeled store in the description to go purchase those. And the profits are shared between the two of us 50-50 because not only is she a fantastic artist who deserves to be supported in that way, she's also an absolutely wonderful person. So if you want to support the show and her as an independent artist, please click the links down below. Let's get started. Trigger warning. This book was written in the 1950s and contains views and words that were used in that time period. I do not agree with these words and views and would never use them in my daily life. I shall be ducking the audio to bleep any offensive language so that this book can be uploaded to its appropriate platforms, but apart from that, the book will stay as it was intended to be read. If you find this sort of language disturbing or triggering, then please listen to another audiobook. Thank you for your understanding, Isaac. One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest By Ken Kessie Part four, three. There had been times when I'd wander around in a daze for as long as two weeks after shock treatment, living in that fog, jumbled blur which is a whole lot like the ragged edge of sleep, that grey zone between light and dark, or between sleeping and waking, or living and dying, where you know you're not unconscious anymore, but you don't know yet what day it is. Or who you are. What's the use of coming back at all? For two weeks. If you don't have a reason to wake up, you can loaf around in that grey zone for a long, fuzzy time. Or if you want to bad enough, I found you can come fighting right out of it. This time, I came fighting out of it in less than a day. Less time than ever. And when the fog was finally slept from my head... It seemed like I'd just come up after a long, deep dive, breaking the surface after being underwater for a hundred years. It was the last treatment they gave me. 
and they gave McMurphy three more treatments that week. As quick as he started coming out of one, getting the click back in his wink, Miss Ratched would arrive with the doctor, and they would ask him if he felt like he was ready to come around and face up to his problem and come back to the ward for a cure. And he'd swell up, aware that every one of those faces undisturbed had turned towards him and was waiting. And he'd tell the nurse that he regretted that he had but one life to give for his country, and she could kiss his rosy red ass before he'd give up the goddamn ship. Yeah. Then stand up, take a couple of bows to those guys grinning at him while the nurse led the doctor into the station to phone the main building and authorize another treatment. Once, as she turned to walk away, he got a hold of her through the back of her uniform. He gave her a pinch that turned her face as red as his hair. I think if the doctor hadn't been there, hiding a grin himself, she would have slapped McMurphy's face. I tried to talk him into playing along with her so as to get out of the treatments. But he just laughed and told me, hell, all he was doing was charging his battery for him, free of nothing. When I get out of here, the first woman that takes on old Red McMurphy and 10,000 watt psychopath, she's gonna light up like a pinball machine and pay off in silver dollars. Nope, I ain't scared of their little battery charger. He insisted it wasn't hurting him. He wouldn't even take his capsules. But every time that loudspeaker called for him to forego his breakfast and prepare to walk to Building 1, the muscles in his jaw went taut, and his whole face drained of color, looking thin and scared. The face I had seen reflected in the windshield on the trip back from the coast. I left disturbed at the end of the week and went back to the ward. I had a lot of things I wanted to say to him before I went. But he'd just come back from a treatment and was sitting following the ping-pong ball with his eyes like he was wired to it. The colored aide and the blonde one took me downstairs and led me onto our ward and locked the door behind me. The ward seemed awful quiet after disturbed. I walked to our day room and for some reason stopped at the door. Everybody's face turned up to me with a different look than they'd ever given me before. Their faces lighted up as if they were looking into the glare of a sideshow platform. Here, in front of your very eyes, Harding spiels, is the wild man who broke the arm of the black boy. Hey, yeah, looky, looky. I grinned back at them, realizing how McMurphy must have felt all these months with these faces screaming up at him. All the guys came over and wanted me to tell them everything that had happened. How was he acting up there? How was he doing? Was it true? what was being rumored over at the gym. They'd been hitting him every day with EST, and he was shrugging it off like water, making book with the technicians on how long he could keep his eyes open after the poles touched. I told them all I could, and nobody seemed to think a thing about me all of a sudden talking with people. A guy who'd been considered deaf and dumb as far back as they'd known him, talking, listening, just like anybody. I told them everything that they'd heard was true, and tossing a few stories on my own. They laughed so hard about some of the things he said to the nurse that two vegetables under their wet sheets on the chronic side grinned and snorted along with the laughter, just like they understood. When the nurse herself brought up the problem of patient McMurphy up in group the next day, said that for some unusual reason he did not seem to be responding to EST at all, and that more drastic means might be required to make contact with him, Harding said, Now that is possible, Miss Ratched, yes. But from what I hear about your dealings upstairs with McMurphy, he hasn't had any difficulty making contact with you. She was thrown off balance 
and flustered so bad with everybody in the room laughing at her that she didn't bring it up again. She saw that Murphy was growing bigger than ever while he was upstairs, but the guys couldn't see the dent she was making on him, growing almost into a legend. A man out of sight can't be made to look weak, she decided, and started making plans to bring him back down to Warward. She figured the guys could see for themselves, then, that he could be as vulnerable as the next man. He couldn't continue his hero role if he was sitting around the day room all day in a shock stupor. The guys anticipated this, and as long as he was on the ward for them to see, she would be giving him shock treatment every time he came out of it. So Harding and Scanlon and Fredrickson and I talked over how we could convince him the best thing for everybody concerned would be his escaping the ward. And by the Saturday, when he was brought back to the ward, footworking into the day room like a boxer into the ring, clasping his hands over his head and announcing the champ was back, we had our plans all worked out. We'd wait until dark, set a mattress on fire, and when the firemen came in, we'd rush him out of the door. Seemed like a fine plan. We couldn't see how he could refuse. But we didn't think about it being the day he made a date to have the girl, Candy, sneak onto the ward for Billy. They brought him back onto the ward about ten in the morning. Full of piss and vinegar, buddies. Then check my plugs and clean my points. I even got a glow like a Model T spark coil. Ever use one of them coils around Halloween time? Damn! Good clean fun. And he batted around the ward, bigger than ever. Spilled a bucket of mop water under the nurse's station door. Laid a pat of butter square under the toe of the least black boy's white suede shoes without the black boy noticing. And smothered giggles all through the lunchroom while it melted to show a color Hardin referred to as a most suggestive yellow. Bigger than ever, and each time you brushed by a student nurse, she gave a yip and rolled her eyes and pitter-patted off down the hall, rubbing her flank. We told him our plan for escape, and he told us there was no hurry, and reminded us of Billy's date. We can't disappoint Billy, boy, can we, buddies? Not when he's about to cash his cherry. and should be a nice little party tonight if we can pull it off. Let's say, maybe, it's my going-away party. It was the big nurse's weekend to work. She didn't want to miss his return, and she decided we'd better have us a meeting to get something settled. At the meeting, she tried once more to bring up her suggestion for a more drastic measure, insisting that the doctor consider such action before it's too late to help the patient. But McMurphy was such a whirling of winks and yawns and belches while she talked, she finally hushed. And when she did, he gave the doctor and all the patients fits by agreeing with everything she said. You know, she might be right, Doc. Look at the good that few measly volts have done me. Maybe, if we doubled the charge, I could pick up Channel 8, like Martini. I'm tired of laying in bed hallucinating, nothing but Channel 4 with the news and weather. The nurse cleared her throat, trying to regain control of her meeting. I wasn't suggesting that we consider more shock, Mr. McMurphy. Ma'am? I was suggesting that we consider an operation. Very simple, really and we've had a history of past successes eliminating aggressive tendencies in certain hostile cases. Hostile, ma'am? I'm as friendly as a pup. Haven't lit the tar of a nade in nearly two weeks. There's been no cause to do any cutting now, has there? She held out her smile, begging him to see how sympathetic she was. Randall, there's no cutting in vault. Besides, 
he went on. It wouldn't be any use to lop them off. I've got another pair in my nightstand. Another pair? One about as big as a baseball, though. McMurphy! Her smile broke like glass when she realized she was being made fun of. But the other one's big enough to be considered normal. He went on like this, clear up to the time when we were ready for bed. By then, there was a festive country fair feeling on the ward, as the men whispered all the possibility of having a party if the girls came with drinks. All the guys were trying to catch Billy's eye, and grinning and winking at him every time he looked. And when we lined up for medication, when Murphy came by and asked the little nurse with the crucifix and the birthmark if he could have a couple of vitamins. She looked surprised, and she said that she didn't see any reason why not, and gave him some pills the size of bird's eggs. Aren't you going to swallow them? she asked. Me? Lord, no. I don't need vitamins. I'll just get them for Billy Boy here. It seems to me to have a peaked look of late. Tired blood, most likely. Then why don't you give them to Billy? I will, honey. I will. But I thought I'd wait till about midnight when he'd have the most need for him. And walked to the dorm, with his arms crooked around Billy's flushing neck, giving Harding a wink, and me a goose in the side with his big thumb as he passed us and left that nurse pop-eyed behind him in the nurse's station, pouring water on her foot. You have to know about Billy Bibbit. In spite of him having wrinkles in his face and a speck of gray in his hair, he still looked like a kid, like a jug-eared and freckled-faced and buck-toothed kid, whistling barefoot across one of those calendars, with a string of bullheads dragging behind him in the dust. And yet, he was nothing like this. You were always surprised to find when he stood up next to one of the other men that he was just as tall as anyone. And that he wasn't jug-eared or freckled or bucked-toothed at all under a close look. And was, in fact, thirty-some years old. I heard him give his age only one time. Overheard him, to tell the truth, when he was talking to his mother down in the lobby. She was the receptionist down there. A solid, well-packed lady with hair revolving from blonde to blue to black and back to blonde again every few months. A neighbor of the big nurses, from what I'd heard, and a dear personal friend. Whenever we'd go on some activity, Billy would always be obliged to stop and lean a scarlet cheek over that desk for her to dab a kiss on. It embarrassed the rest of us as much as it did Billy, and for that reason, nobody ever teased him about it. Not even McMurphy. One afternoon... I don't recall how long back, we stopped on our way to activities and sat around the lobby on the big plastic sofas, or outside in the two o'clock sun while one of the black boys used the phone to call his bookmaker. And Billy's mother took the opportunity to leave her work and come out from behind her desk and take her boy by the hand and lead him outside to sit near where I was on the grass. She sat, stiff there on the grass, tied at the bend with her short round legs out in front of her in stockings reminding me of the color of baloney skins. And Billy lay beside her and put his head in her lap and let her tease at his ear with dandelion fluff. Billy was talking about looking for a wife and going to college someday. His mother tickled him with the fluff and laughed at such foolishness. Sweetheart, you still have gads of time for things like that. Your whole life is ahead of you. Mother, I'm 31 years old. She laughed and twiddled his ear with the weed. Sweetheart, do I look like a mother of a middle-aged man?
We'll be right back. I'm Michael Severs, the writer, producer, and creator of The Silver King's War, a podcast series about my father's Second World War as a B-26 bombardier. Stanley L. Silverfield, a first lieutenant in the United States Army Air Corps from Birmingham, Alabama, rode in the nose, the greenhouse of the famed Martin Marauder. You can find The Silver King's War wherever you listen to podcasts. She wrinkled her nose and opened her lips at him and made a kind of wet kissing sound in the air with her tongue. And I have to admit, she didn't look like a mother of any kind. I didn't believe myself that he could be 31 years old, till later, when I edged up close enough to get a look at the birth date on his wristband. At midnight, when Giver and the other black boy and the nurse went off duty, and the old colored fellow, Mr. Turkle, came on for his shift, me Murphy and Billy were already up, taking vitamins, I imagined. I got out of bed and put on a robe and walked out to the day room where they were talking with Mr. Turkle. Harding and Scanlon and Seffel and some other guys came out too. McMurphy was telling Mr. Turkle what to expect if the girls did come, reminding him, actually, because it looked like they talked it over beforehand a couple of weeks back. McMurphy said that the thing to do was to let the girl in the window instead of risking having her come through the lobby where the night supervisor might be, and to unlock the seclusion room then. Yeah, won't that make a nice honeymoon shack for the lovers? Mighty secluded. Uh, McMurphy, Billy kept trying to say, and to keep the lights out so the supervisor couldn't see in, and close the dorm doors and not wake up every slobbering chronic in the place, and to keep quiet. We don't want to disturb them. Uh, come on, Mac, Billy said. Mr. Turkle kept nodding and bobbing his head, appearing to fall asleep. When McMurphy said, I guess that pretty well covers things, Mr. Turkle said, No, not entirely, and sat there, grinning in his white suit with his bald yellow head, floating at the end of his neck like a balloon on a stick. Oh, come on, Turkle, it'll be worth your while. She would bring in a couple of bottles. Now, you getting closer, Mr. Turkle said, his head lolled and bobbed. He acted like he was barely able to keep awake. I heard he worked another job during the day at the racetrack. Murphy turned to Billy. Turkle's holding up for a bigger contract, Billy boy. How much is it worth to you to lose your old cherry? Before Billy could stop stuttering and answer, Mr. Turkle shook his head. It ain't that. Not money. She's bringing more than the bottle with her, ain't she? This sweet thing? You people be sharing more than the bottle, won't you? He grinned around the faces. Billy nearly burst, trying to stutter something about not candy, not his girl. McMurphy took him aside and told him not to worry about his girl's chastity. Turk would likely be so drunk and sleepy by the time Billy finished that the old coot couldn't put a carrot in a washtub. The girl was late again. We sat out in the day room, in our robes, listening to McMurphy and Mr. Turkle tell army stories while they passed one of Mr. Turkle's cigarettes back and forth, smoking it in a funny way, holding the smoke in when they inhaled, till their eyes bugged. Once, Harding asked what manner of cigarette they were smoking that smelled so provocative, and Mr. Turkle said in a high, breath-holding voice, Just plain old cigarette. <laughs> yes, you want to talk? Billy got more 
and more nervous. Afraid the girls might not show up. Afraid she might. He kept asking why they didn't all go to bed instead of sitting out here in the cold, like hounds waiting in the kitchen for table scraps. And we just grinned at him. None of us felt like going to bed. It wasn't cold at all. It was pleasant to relax in the half-light and listen to McMurphy and Mr. Turkle tell tales. Nobody acted sleepy, or not even very worried that it was after two o'clock and the girl hadn't showed up yet. Turkle suggested maybe she was late because the ward was so dark, so she couldn't see which one to come to. And McMurphy said that was the obvious truth. So the two of them ran up and down the halls, turning on every light in the place. We're even about to turn on the big overhead wake-up lights in the dorm, when Harding told them this would just get the other men out of bed to share things with. They agreed, and settled for all the lights in the doctor's office instead. No sooner did they have the ward lit up like full daylight than there came a tapping at the window. Murphy ran to the window and put his face to it, cupping his hands on each side so he could see. He drew back and grinned at us. She walks like beauty in the night, he said. He took Billy by the wrist and dragged him to the window. Let her in, Turkle. Let this mad stud at her. Look, Murphy, wait. Billy was balking like a mule. Don't you murphy me, Billy boy. It's too late to back out now. You'll pull through. I'll tell you what. I got five dollars here says you burn that woman down, all right? Open the window, Turkle. There were two girls in the dark. Candy and the other one that hadn't shown up for the fishing trip. Hot dog, Turkle said, helping them through. Enough for everybody. We all went to help, and had to lift their tight skirts up to their thighs to step through the window. Candy said, You damn McMurphy! and tried so wild to throw her arms around him as she came near to breaking the bottle she held by the neck in each hand. She was weaving around quite a bit, and her hair was falling out of the hairdo she had piled on top of her head. I thought she looked better with it swung at the back, like she'd worn it on the fishing trip. She gestured at the other girl with a bottle as she came through the window. Sandy came along. She just up and left that maniac from Beaverton she married. Isn't that wild? The girl came through the window, and kissed McMurphy, and said, Hello, Mac. I'm sorry I didn't show up, but that's over. You can take just so many funsies like white mice in your pillowcase, and worms in your cold cream, and frogs in your bra. She shook her head once, and wiped her hand in front of her, like she was wiping away the memory of her animal-loving husband. Jesus, what maniac. They were both in skirts, and sweaters, and nylons, and barefoot, both red-cheeked and giggling. We had to keep asking for directions, Candy explained, at every bar we came to. Sandy was turning round in a big, wide-eyed circle. Well, we, Candy girl, what are we in now? Is this real? Are we in an asylum? Man. She was bigger than Candy, and maybe five years older, and I tried to lock her bay-colored hair in a stylish bun at the back of her head, but I kept stringing down around her broad, milk-fed cheekbones, and she looked like a cowgirl trying to pass herself off as a society lady. Her shoulders and breasts and hips were too wide, and her grin too big and open for her to ever be called beautiful. But she was pretty, and she was healthy, and she had one long finger crooked in the ring of a gallon of wine, and it swung at her side like a purse. We'll be right back. 
Do you ever wish you could sit in on a conversation with some of your favorite authors and listen to them talk about their writing process, their path to publication, and of course, their newest novels? Hi, I'm Marissa Meyer, best-selling author of The Lunar Chronicles, and I would love for you to check out the Happy Writer podcast, where every week I talk with other writers about books, craft, inspiration, and how to bring a little more joy into our lives. The Happy Writer is available wherever you get your podcasts or find us on Instagram at Happy Writer Podcast. How, Candy? How, how, how did these wild things happen to us? She turned around once more and stopped, with her bare feet spread, giggling. These things don't happen, Harding said to the girl solemnly. These things are fantasies. You lie awake at night dreaming up, and then I'm afraid to tell you analysts. You're not really here. That wine isn't real. None of this exists. Now let's go on from here. Hello, Billy, Candy said. Look at that stuff, Turkle said. Candy straight-armed one of the bottles awkwardly towards Billy. I brought you a present. These things are Thorn-Smithian daydreams, Harding said. Boy, the girl named Sandy said, what have we got ourselves into? Shh, Scanlan said, and scowled around him. You'll wake up those other bastards talking so loud. What's the matter, Stingy? Sandy giggled, starting to turn her circle again. You scared there's not enough to go around? Sandy, I might have known you bring that damn cheap port. Boy, she stopped her turning to look up at me. Dig this one, Candy. A Goliath. Fee-fo-fum. Mr. Turkle said, Hot dog, and locked the screen back. And Sandy said, Boy, again. We were all in an awkward little cluster in the middle of the day room, shifting around one another, saying things just because nobody else knew what to do yet. Never been up against a situation like it. And I don't know when this excited, uneasy, flurry of talk and giggling and shuffling around the day room would have stopped that ward door hadn't rung with a key, knocking it open down the hall. Jarred everybody like a burglar alarm going off. Oh, Lord God, Mr. Turkle said, clapping his hand on the top of his bald head. It's the supervisor. Come to fire my black ass. We all ran into the latrine and turned out the light and stood in the dark, listening to one another breathe. We could all hear the supervisor wander around the ward, calling for Mr. Turkle in a loud half-afraid whisper. Her voice was soft and worried, rising at the end as she called. Mr. Turkle! Mr. Turkle! Where the hell is he? McMurphy whispered. Why don't he answer? Don't worry, Scanlon said. She won't look in the can. But why won't he answer? Maybe he got too high. Man, what you talking about? I don't get too high. Not a little middling joint like that one. It was Mr. Turkle's voice, somewhere in the dark latrine with us. Jesus, Turkle, what are you doing in here? My Murphy was trying to sound stern and keep from laughing at the same time. Get out of here and see what she wants. What she thinks she doesn't find you. The end is upon us, Harding said and sat down. I'll be merciful. Turkle opened the door and slipped out and met her in the hall. She'd come over to see what all the lights were on about. What made it necessary to turn on every fixture in the ward? Turkle said every fixture wasn't on, that the dorm lights were off, and so were the ones in the latrine, 
She said that was no excuse for the other lights. What possible reason could there be for all this light? Turkle couldn't come up with an answer for this, and during the long pause, I heard a bottle being passed around near me in the dark. Out in the hall, she asked him again, and Turkle told her, well, he was just cleaning up, policing the areas. She wanted to know why, then, was the latrine, the place that his job description called for him to have clean, the only place in the dark. And the bottle went around again, and we waited to see what he'd answer. It came by me, and I took a drink. I felt I needed it. I could hear Turkle swallowing all the way out in the hall, umming and ahhing for something to say. He's skulled, May Murphy hissed. Somebody's gonna have to go on and help him. I heard a toilet flush behind me, and the door opened, and Harding was caught in the hall light as he went out, pulling up his pajamas. I heard the supervisor gasp at the sight of him, and he told her to pardon him, but he hadn't seen her being as it was so dark. It isn't dark. In the latrine, I'm in. I always switch off the last to achieve a better bowel movement. Those mirrors, you understand? When the light is on, the mirrors seem to be sitting in judgment over me to arbitrate a punishment if everything doesn't come out right. But aid Mr. Turkle said he was cleaning in there, and doing quite a good job, too, I might add, considering the restrictions imposed on him by the dark. Would you care to see? Harding pushed the door open a crack, and a slice of light cut across the latrine floor tile. I caught a glimpse of the supervisor backing off, saying she'd have to decline his offer, but she had further rounds to make. I heard the ward door unlock again up the hall, and she let herself off the ward. Harding called out to her to return for another visit, and everybody rushed out and shook his hand and pounded his back for the way he'd pulled it off. We stood out in the hall, and the wine went round again, Seffold said he'd as leave have vodka if there was something to mix it with. He asked Mr. Turkle if there wasn't something on the ward to put in it. And Turkle said nothing but water. Fredrickson asked what about the cough syrup. They give me a little now again from a half-gallon jug in the drug room. It's not bad tasting. You got a key for that room, Turkle? Turkle said the supervisor was the only one on nights who had a key to the drug room. But Murphy talked him into letting us have a try at picking the lock. Turkle grinned and nodded his head lazily. While he and McMurphy worked at the lock on the drug room with paper clips, the girls and the rest of us ran around the nurse's station, opening files and reading records. Look here, Scanlon said, waving one of those folders. Talk about complete. They even got my first grade report card here. <sighs> miserable grades. Just miserable. Billy and his girl were going over his folder. She stepped back to look him over. All these things, Billy. Phrenic this and pathetic that. You don't look like you have all these things. The other girl had opened the supply drawer and was suspicious about what the nurse needed with all those hot water bottles. A million of them. And Harding was sitting on the big nurse's desk, shaking his head at the whole affair. McMurphy and Turkle got the door of the drug room open and brought out a bottle of thick, cherry-colored liquid from the icebox. McMurphy tipped the bottle to the light and read the label out loud. Artificial flavors, coloring, citric acid. 70% inert materials, that must be water, and 20% alcohol, that's fine, and 10% coating. Warning, narcotic may be habit-forming. He unscrewed the bottle and took a taste of it, closing his eyes. He worked his tongue around his teeth and took another swallow and read the label again.
Well, he said, and clicked his teeth together like they'd just been sharpened. If we cut a little bit with vodka, I think we might be all right. How we fix rice cubes, Tarky, old buddy? Mixed in the paper medicine cups with the liqueur and the port wine, the syrup had a taste like a kid's drink, but a punch like the cactus apple wine we used to get in the Dallas. Cold and soothing on the throat, and hot and furious once it got down. We turned out the lights in the day room and sat around drinking it. We threw the first couple cups down like we were taking our medications, drinking it in serious and silent doses, looking one another over to see if it was going to kill anybody. McMurphy and Turkle switched back and forth from the drink to Turkle's cigarettes and got to giggling again as they discussed how it would be to lay the little nurse with the birthmark who went off at midnight. I'd be scared, Turkle said, that she might want to go whooping me with that big old cross on that chain. Wouldn't that be a fix to being now? I'd be scared, McMurphy said, that just about the time I was getting my jollies, she'd reach around behind me with a thermometer and take my temperature. That busted everybody up. Harding stopped laughing long enough to join in the joking. Or worse yet, he said, just lie there under you with a dreadful concentration on her face and tell you, oh Jesus, listen, tell you what your pulse was. Oh, don't. Oh my God. Or even worse, just lie there and be able to calculate your pulse and temperature, both sans instruments. Oh God, please don't. We laughed till we were rolling about the couches and chairs, choking and teary-eyed. The girls were so weak from laughing, they had to try two or three times to get their feet. <laughs> I got it. Got tinkle, the big one said, and went weaving and giggling towards the latrine, and missed the door, staggering into the door room while we all hushed one another with fingers to lips waiting till she gave a squeal. And we heard old Colonel Madison roar. The pillow is a horse. And come whisking out of the dorm, right behind her, in his wheelchair. Seffel wheeled the colonel back to the dorm and showed the girl where the latrine was personally. Told her it was generally used by males only, but he would stand at the door while she was in there and guard against intrusion on her privacy. Defend it against all comers, by gosh. She thanked him, solemnly, and shook his hand, and they saluted each other. And while she was inside, here came the colonel, out of the door in his wheelchair again. And Seffel had his hands full, keeping him out of the latrine. When the girl came out of the door, he was trying to ward off the charges of the wheelchair with his foot, while we stood on the edge of the fracas, cheering one guy or the other. The girl helped Seffel put the colonel back to bed, and then the two of them went down the hall and waltzed to music nobody could hear. Harding drank and watched, and shook his head. It isn't happening. It's all a collaboration of Kafka and Mark Twain and Martini. McMurphy and Turkle got to worrying that there might still be too many lights. So they went, up and down the hall, turning out everything that glowed, even the little knee-high lights, till the place was pitch black. Turkle got out flashlights, and we played tag, up and down the hall, with the wheelchairs from storage. Having a big time, till we heard one of Seffold's convulsion cries, and went to find him, sprawled, twitching beside that big girl Sandy. She was sitting on the floor, brushing at her skirt, looking down at Seffold. I never experienced anything like it, she said with quiet awe. Fredrickson knelt beside his friend, and pulled a wallet between his teeth to keep him from chewing his tongue, and helped him get his pants buttoned. You all right, safe? Safe? Seffold didn't open his eyes, but he raised a limp hand, and picked the wallet out of his mouth. He grinned through his spit. I'm all right, 
he said. Medicate me. Turn me loose again. You really need some medication, Safe? Medication, Fredrickson said over his shoulder, still kneeling. Medication, Harding repeated, and weaved off with a flashlight to the drug room. Sandy watched him go with glazed eyes. She was still sitting beside Seffold, stroking his head in wonderment. Maybe you better bring me something, too, she called drunkenly after Harding. I never experienced anything that come even close to it. Down the hall, we heard a glass crash, and Harding came back with double handfuls of pills. He sprinkled them over Seffold, with the woman, like it was crumbling clots into a grave. He raised his eyes towards the ceiling. Most merciful God, accept these two poor sinners into your arms, and keep the doors ajar for the coming of the rest of us, because you are witnessing the end, the absolute, irrevocable, fantastic end. I finally realized what is happening. It's our last fling. We are doomed henceforth and must screw our courage to the sticking point and face up to our impending fate. We shall be, all of us, shot at dawn. One hundred cc's apiece. Miss Ratchet shall line us all against the wall where we'll face the terrible maw of a muzzle-loading shotgun which is loaded with Milton's, Thorazine's, Liberium's, Stelazine's, and with a wave of her sword, Bluey. Tranquilize all of us completely out of existence. He sagged against the wall and slid to the floor, pills hopping out of his hand in all directions, like red and green and orange bugs. Amen, he said, and closed his eyes. The girl on the floor smothered down her skirt over her long, hard-working legs and looked at Seffel, still grinning and twitching there under the lights beside her and said, Never in my life experienced anything come even halfway near. Harding's speech, if it hadn't actually sobered people, had at least made them realize the seriousness of what we were doing. The night was getting on, and some thought had to be given to the arrival of the staff in the morning. Billy Bibbit and his girl mentioned that it was after four, and if it was all right, if people didn't mind... They'd like to have Mr. Turkle unlock the seclusion room. They went off under the arch of flashlight beams, and the rest of us went into the day room to see what we could decide about cleaning up. Turkle was all but passed out when he got back from seclusion, and we had to push him into the day room in a wheelchair. As I walked after them, it came to me as a kind of sudden surprise that I was drunk. Actually drunk, glowing and grinning, and staggering drunk for the first time since the army. Drunk, along with half a dozen other guys and a couple of girls, right on the big nurse's ward. Drunk and running and laughing and carrying on with women, square in the center of the Combine's most powerful stronghold. I thought back on the night, and what we were doing, and it was near impossible to believe. I had to keep reminding myself that it had truly happened. That we had made it happen. We'd just unlocked a window and let it in, like you let in the fresh air. Maybe the Combine wasn't all-powerful. What was to stop us from doing it again now that we saw we could? Or keep us from doing other things we wanted? It felt so good thinking about this that 
I gave a yell and swooped down on McMurphy and the girl Sandy walking along in front of me, grabbed them both up, one in each arm, and ran all the way to the day room, with them hollering and kicking like kids. I felt that good. Colonel Madison got up again, bright-eyed and full of lessons, and Scanlon wheeled him back to bed. Seffold and Martini and Fredrickson said that they'd better hit the sack too. McMurphy and I and Harding and the girl and Mr. Turkle stayed up to finish off the cough syrup and decide what we were going to do about the mess the ward was in. Me and Harding acted like we were the only ones really worried about it. McMurphy and the big girl just sat there and sipped that syrup and grinned at each other and played hand games in the shadows. And Mr. Turkle kept dropping off to sleep. Harding did his best to try and get them concerned. All of you fail to comprehend the complexities of the situation, he said. Bull, McMurphy said. Harding slapped the table. McMurphy, Turkle, you fail to realize what has occurred here tonight. On a mental ward. Miss Wretched's ward. The recuperations will be devastating. McMurphy bit the girl's earlobe. Turkle nodded and opened one eye and said, That's true. She'll be on tomorrow, too. I, however, have a plan, Harding said. He got to his feet. He said McMurphy was obviously too far gone to handle the situation himself, and someone else would have to take over. As he talked, he stood straighter and became more sober. He spoke in an earnest and urgent voice and his hands shaped what he had said. I was glad he was there to take over. His plan was that we tie up Turkle and make it look like McMurphy snuck up behind him, tied him up with, oh, say, strips of torn sheet, and relieve him of his keys. And after getting the keys, had broken into the drug room, scattered drugs around, and raised hell with the files just to spite the nurse. She'd believe that part. Then he'd unlocked the screen and made his escape. McMurphy said it sounded like a television plot, and it was so ridiculous it couldn't help but work. And he complimented Harding on his clear-headedness. Harding said the plan had its merits. It would keep the other guys out of trouble with the nurse, and keep Turkle his job, and get McMurphy off the ward. He said McMurphy could have the girls drive him to Canada, or Tijuana, or even Nevada if he wanted, and be completely safe. The police never pressed too hard to pick up AWOLs from the hospital, because 90% of them always show back up within a few days, broken drunk and looking for that free bed and board. We talked about it for a while, and finished the cough syrup. We finally talked it to silence. Harding sat back down. McMurphy took his arm from around the girl, and looked from me to Harding, thinking that strange, tired expression on his face again. He asked what about us, why didn't we just get up and get our clothes on and make out with him? I'm not quite ready yet, Mac, Harding told him. Then what makes you think that I am? Harding looked at him in silence for a long time and smiled, and then said, No, you don't understand. I'll be ready in a few weeks, but I want to do it on my own, by myself right out of that front door, with all the traditional red tape and complications. I want my wife to be here in a car at a certain time to pick me up.
I want them to know I was able to do it that way. Murphy nodded. What about you, Chief? I figure I'm all right. I just don't know where I want to go yet. Somebody should stay here a few weeks after you're gone to see that things don't start sliding back. And what about Billy and Seffel and Fredrickson and the rest? I can't speak for them, Harding said. They've still got their problems, just like all of us. They're still sick men in a lot of ways. But at least there's that. They are sick men now. Maybe they can be well men someday. I can't say. McMurphy thought this over, looking at the backs of his hands. He looked back up to Harding. Harden, what is it? What happens? You mean all this? McMurphy nodded. Harding shook his head. I don't think I can give you an answer. Oh, I could give you Freudian reasons with fancy talk. That would be right as far as it went. But what you want are the reasons for the reasons. And I'm not able to give you those. Not for the others, anyway. For myself, guilt, shame, fear, self-belittlement. I discovered at an early age I was... Shall we be kind and say different? It's a better, more general word than the other one. I indulged in certain practices that our society regards as shameful. And I got sick. It wasn't the practices, I don't think. It was the feeling that the great, deadly, pointing forefinger of society was pointing at me. And the great voice of millions chanting, Shame! 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 It's society's way of dealing with someone different. I'm different, McMurphy said. Why didn't some things like that happen to me? I've always had people bugging me about one thing or another as far back as I can remember. But that's not what. But it didn't drive me crazy. No, you're right. That's not what drove you crazy. I wasn't giving my reason as the sole reason. No, I used to think one time, a few years ago, my turtleneck years, that society's chastising was the sole force that drove one along the road to crazy. But you've caused me to reappraise my theory. There's something else that drives people, strong people like you, my friend, down that road. Yeah? Not that I'm admitting I'm down that road, but what is this something else? It is us. He swept his hand around him in a soft white circle and repeated, Us. McMurphy heartfeltly said, Bull, and grinned and stood up, pulling the girl to her feet. He squinted up at the dim clock. It's nearly five. I need me a little shut-eye before my big getaway. The day shift doesn't come for another two hours yet. Let's leave Billy and Candy down there a while longer. I cut out about six. Sandy, honey, maybe an hour in the dorm would sober us up. What do you say? Got a long drive tomorrow, whether it's Canada or Mexico or wherever. Turkle and Harding and I stood up too. 
everybody was still weaving pretty much, still pretty drunk. But a mellow, sad feeling had drifted over the drunk. Turkle said he'd boot McMurphy and the girl out of bed in an hour. Wake me up, too, Harding said. I'd like to stand at the window with a silver bullet in my hand and ask, Who was that masked man as you ride? The hell with that. You guys both get in bed, and I don't ever want to see hide nor hair you again. You get me? Harding grinned and nodded, but he didn't say anything. Murphy put his hand out, and Harding shook it. Murphy tipped back like a cowboy, reeling out of saloon, and winked. You can be the bull goose loony again, buddy. Well, Big Mac out of the way. He turned to me and frowned. I don't know what you can be, Chief. You still got some looking to do. Maybe you could get a job at being the bad guy on TV, wrestling. Anyway, take her easy. I shook his hand, and we all started for the dorm. Mayor Murphy told Turkle to tear up some sheets and pick out some of his favorite knots to be tied with. Turkle said he would. I got into my bed in the green light of the dorm and heard McMurphy and the girl get into his bed. I was feeling numb and warm. I heard Turkle open the door to the linen room out in the hall, have a long, loud, belching sigh as he pulled the door closed behind him. My eyes got used to the dark, and I could see McMurphy and the girl snuggled into each other's shoulders, getting comfortable. More like two little kids than grown man and grown woman in a bed together to make love. And that was the way the black boys found them when they came to turn on the dorm lights at 6.30. Thank you so very much for listening. If you enjoyed, please like, comment, share, all that jazz. And if you really enjoyed, do subscribe because there's more to come. And if listening on podcast, please leave a review. Five stars preferred, but you've got free will, do as you please. Next chapter in a couple of days' time is the last one. Um, I really hope you've enjoyed the book. I most certainly have, and... um, The ending is pretty intense, so please stick around for that. Once again, thank you for listening, and until next time, bye-bye.